Now it's time for News with My Dad, a show where we talk about the news with my dad. And in studio live, playing the role of my dad is, in fact, my dad, the star of our show, Joe Smith. Pop, how you doing? I'm ready. This is a show we talk about the news. We try to talk about the important stuff. Sometimes we talk about the unimportant stuff. When it's unimportant, we try to say so. We take turns. Dad typically takes the first turn. Pop, do you have a shout-out? I have two. Two shout-outs this morning. First, I want a shout-out to Lonan, I hope I'm pronouncing it right, Farrow, who did the in-depth article on Harvey Weinstein, without which Harvey Weinstein would never have happened, without which the Me Too movement might never really have happened. So I am shouting out for Mr. Farrell. So you want to give a man the credit for the Me Too movement. I understand. I understand. (laughs) Go on. And then I want to shout out for Katherine Johnson. Katherine Johnson died this week at 101. And she was the hidden figure that did the calculations for the Mercury mission, for the Apollo mission, the woman that John Glenn said, get the girl to check the numbers before you send me into space. And when she checked the numbers, he had faith. African-American woman who was critical to the success of our space program. She passed away at 101, and she was a wonderful, delightful, amazing woman that I'm shouting out for her this morning. We're going to get to news right away. Want to give a heads up. We're going to be interviewing candidate for Secretary of State Jamie McLeod Skinner, part of our pride-swallowing siege of trying to interview just about every candidate for local and statewide public office in Oregon. Thank you to the members for making that possible. I was having a conversation with an, an early X-ray supporter. says, you know, I'm disappointed there isn't enough uh, communication. There isn't enough news and information about these candidates. There's a historic opportunity right now to reshape the city council. There are important races in the legislature and Secretary of State's office. Uh, if you watch TV news, once you take out sports, weather, traffic, uh, crime, and commercials, you're left with about three minutes. Where are we supposed to get this stuff? Well, this is one place. And we're going to be talking to Jamie McLeod Skinner. Dad, Mike Pence is on the case for a coronavirus. Uh, Donald Trump also made clear that it's different than Ebola because Ebola makes you disintegrate. Uh, and now the uh, and that the reason for the stock market crash was a crash. It's all Nancy Pelosi's fault. Well, no, it was it was because the Democratic debate that happened on Tuesday night. So the thousand point drop on Monday and the thousand point drop on Tuesday was because of what I guess what people are anticipating hearing. Than that late evening, it was just really. I mean, you know, there's there's people who have the perfect information market hypothesis who would say, yeah, the the market really knows, and apparently it knew, whatever was going to happen Tuesday night. And today, of course, it's clearly because of Tuesday night. Well, this this tonight is at least after Tuesday. That's one. That's what. Uh, although I will say, but the yeah, best yeah, day it, for the market it, was the day after the after it, the debate. Yes, yesterday it it kind of tried to recover. Yeah, I mean, it it, it didn't go down. Because well, you have you have a lot of human beings and a lot of bots who are now trained to buy the dip, right? We we've been in the middle of the longest uh, the, the longest economic run up in American history, uh, not by a large measure, but by a small measure, and of course starting with the Obama administration with the uh, recovery of the Great Recession after the Great Recession, and 
there is a significant uh, there's a significant concern that uh, are we heading into a larger recession? Uh, are we, you know, we'll see what happens. But where do you want to start? You want to talk about stock market? You want to talk about coronavirus? Do you know, Dad? Do you know there's six variety? There's a number of varieties of coronaviruses. I understood several that of whom we probably have had. Really? Yeah. That SARS is a coronavirus. MERS, MERS is, is a, a coronavirus. coronavirus. Right. Neither of us have had those. Those have 30% death rates. Uh, but there are four others, the names of which I don't know, but they're essentially common colds that are just kind, that are kinds of coronaviruses. This is worse. Uh, so shout out to the New York Times. Wanted to give some information. The most likely, this is not as dangerous if you get it as uh, SARS or MERS. Or but probably it's, not as dangerous as the flu. No, it is more dangerous than the flu. Let's it correct that right now. Okay. Uh, the, it, it, depending on what we mean by danger, the uh, death rate for the flu is about 0.01%. Death rate for, or no, 0.02%. Uh, the, I think that's right, 0.02 or is it just 0.2? The, uh, no, it's 0.1. It's 0.1. It's 0.1. The death that's rate. one out of 1,000. For this, for the death rate for this is about 2.5%. Okay. So it's about 20 times. Two and a half people it, out it, of 1,000. It's, it's about 20 times more deadly. It isn't nearly as widespread as a flu. Uh, the MERS, the, MERS was MERS and SARS. I think MERS was something like thirty-five percent. There's twenty-five to thirty percent death rates, but much harder to communicate, much harder to give to someone else. The danger here is it's much easier. It transmits almost like the cold. The most dangerous ways to catch it apparently are coughing and touching of surfaces. So my guess is Purell might be the thing that rescues the American stock market as people try to keep their surfaces clear and wear masks or you know, cover their mouths when they cough. Uh, there are now cases in the United States, not yet confirmed of the case in the United States, are com have been communicated by someone else in the United States, right? Or, or they're just from people There's who have traveled. There's at least one person they haven't been able to figure out where they got where it, where it came from. Right. Uh, if the uh, if it is not abated, there is not a vaccine yet. And by the way, antibiotics don't do anything about it. All antibiotics do is reduce the. If you take a bunch of antibiotics, all that does is reduce the antibiotic supply, and reduce your tolerance or increase your tolerance to antibiotics. Reduce the effectiveness of antibiotics for you and, by the way, probably for other people. Uh, there isn't a vaccine yet. The uh, New York Times expert explained that he, the closest thing he could uh, analogize this to was the Spanish flu. The Spanish flu, which had a similar death rate, about 2%, 2.5% death rate, uh, and ended up being a huge pandemic in 1918. The hope is now it is no longer 1918. That we have more ventilators, that this causes respiratory challenges, that's what kills people. Something else we've learned is that children are un, have been unlikely to less likely to catch it and unlikely to die for it from it. Best hunch is that's because they have more similar coronaviruses already kind of in their right. body and they've built up immunities. People 30 and up, generally males 30 and up, particularly smokers age 30 and up, are the more likely to not only catch it but particularly die from it. The older you are, the more likely you are to die from it. Again, because it's a respiratory illness. If you already have, if you already have respiratory challenges, yeah, you're not a smoker though. Uh, if you have already have respiratory challenges or weak lungs, it's more likely to be dangerous. Uh, and the big hope is that there's not. What we saw with the Spanish flu was there was a spring wave, and then it quieted over the summer. Because viruses don't like it in the summer. Apparently, I think that might be why they are called colds. Not because if you get cold, you're going to catch one, but because viruses like cold weather better. I didn't have, I didn't know that before. And 
And do you know that now, or did you just make it no, up? No, I just made it up. Okay. Uh, it, was, it's, it would stand to conjecture, as much of the things I say might stand to conjecture. Somebody could text in the correct I thing Correct about me a little that. bit. And if we, uh, but if there is not a vaccine by summer, particularly by the you know mid end of summer, next winter could be bad. Then fall, that's when the that's when the Spanish flu really became a bad thing. So that's the closest arc we can see. Uh, this is a dangerous thing. Don't want to be alarmist, but also do want people to be prepared. And that's what I know about that. Oh, and Mike Pence has been tapped. Here's my here's my hot take on this. And then let's talk about whatever you want to talk about. But here's my take on this. One of the challenges. One of the challenges of not hiring based on talent, not hiring based on experience, but hiring only based on loyalty and having a pretty thin sector of the populace to draw from. One of the downsides of having a movement that wants to gut government and wants to undermine public services and public structures is that when there is a real national problem, who the heck are you going to hire? Who the heck are you going to use? Who's the great team of experts? Who is the team of rivals? Who are the fantastic public heroes who are going to be able to take on this challenge? What's the apparatus of the and infrastructure of the governmental structures that are going to solve this problem? You end up, you got kind of a thin bench. You got a thin team to call upon. So you call on Mike Pence, who, I don't know. Whose job description consists of sitting in the Senate when they're in session. <laughs> What's next, Bob? I think we ought to talk just a little bit about the debate. Yes, fire away. Well, once again, I think the big winner in the debate was Donald Trump. Just because they were mean to each other? It was a cat fight. They're shouting over each other. The, the. By the way, for all, I, my, my, uh, this was just shared with me. The uh, for all the people who think dogs are better than cats, I'm one of those people. Uh, just know that cats. I was just communicating. Cats have never worked with cops. <laughs> The moderators who were clapping themselves on the back were awful. The moderators insist on only asking questions which are designed to create a cat fight, to create going against each other, rather than asking questions about what are you going to do to address income inequality, what are you going to do to address the bloated defense budget, what are you going to do to address global warming? What are you going to do? What do you think we could do? And also asking questions that encourages some courageous candidate to admit that the president in most of these areas can't do anything without Congress. And they didn't ask really any no, questions. That's about driven me nuts the whole time. We're now at ten debates in or whatever, and they're still still helping define. Drives me crazy. Helping define the job of the presidency is is does not come out of the tongues of the people who are supposed to guide the American people through making this choice. That's right. It really is. That's I, right. I, I, they, they, I'm getting more frustrated by it. The, by the way, we got a text in uh, from Crystal. Thank you, Crystal. Uh, we love you, Crystal. I work in healthcare. There's currently a worldwide shortage of surgical masks. So you don't need a bunch of surgical masks. Don't buy all the surgical masks. Right. We need to reserve. By saying that, maybe some people are going to go out and buy surgical masks. We just, need you know, to reserve the surgical masks for the surgeons and the nurses. The people who really need them. Who really, who are on the front lines. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Anyway, virtually no questions about foreign relations. Inviting the people, and they talk about healthcare, 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 and not yet 
has one candidate had the courage to say, look, let's stop kidding ourselves. Unless we get a Senate with at least 55 Democrats, there is not going to be any health care legislation. And furthermore, the Congress... We don't, we don't elect Harry Potter presidents with magic policy wands. That's not what we elect. But on the other hand, in the area of foreign relations, where the president has huge discretionary power, they, almost, they don't talk about it at all. What I have waited for a candidate to say, and I'm stealing from Eric Stan, who used to be in the city council, who was a really smart dude. And when he would do house parties, we would ask him questions. And he would give an answer very much akin to the one that I am offering to a presidential candidate who I am confident is listening right now. So he said, listen, I'm going to answer your question, but recognize the answer to this question is not the most important thing. There's any number of a thousand decisions I'm going to have to make. And I'm not going to be able to impose my will on every policy debate. But it'll help give you a window into how I think through problems, how I process problems. And that can help you evaluate who ought to be the president or who ought to be on city council. That's, a, I think, a really wise way. So, for instance, and I do think, by the way, this is why that when Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders say they're for universal health care is a justifiable reason to care about that. Not because they're necessarily going to be able to do that, because it, but at least because they're willing to part from some of the entrenched power uh, within the healthcare industry that doesn't want to do that, within the healthcare, the profit-motivated healthcare industry that doesn't want to do that, right? So I'm not saying it's not irrelevant, or that I'm not saying it's entirely, I'm not saying it's entirely irrelevant, but it could be overstated in its relevance. And because it's useful as a proxy for other choices and other decisions, it's good to think about some of those other decisions. And, you know, I keep wanting him to talk about antitrust law. So what did Eric Sten do? What? I'm not clear. No, that was just his answer. When he, oh. somebody to ask, ask him oh, a question at a house party, he would say, listen, I'm going to answer your question, but know that there's any one of like a hundred you know, thousand questions you can ask me. What's going to be most important for you to evaluate is how I process problems. Right. Not because you should vote for me or vote against me based on whether I answer this question correctly according to your predilections and preferences. And I think that's actually a really useful way yeah, to useful. evaluate a leader. You can only learn so much at a job interview, right? You need more than just a job interview to select somebody. Uh, and these debates aren't, you know, great job interviews. But the interviewers need to do better at treating this as a job interview. Let's move on. What's next, Bob? Well, before we leave the debates, I just want to mention that Bernie Sanders laid the charge that it cost $1,750 to get in to the debate. Yeah, was that, that true? It turns out that is not true, absolutely was mm -hmm. not true. Every candidate was given the same number of free tickets, and the party had free tickets. There was an event, not a, not a part of the debate, it was a dinner that it did cost $1,750 to attend, which, if you bought in, guaranteed you a ticket. But it was uh, it was not to get into the debate. In the New York Times review, where they ask all their pundits to score each of the debate participants in a one to ten, uh, similar to the methodology I have done, uh, using not just New York Times pundits but pundits generally, uh, the three top were Bernie Sanders, uh, Pete Buttigieg, and Elizabeth Warren. Of course, some of the analysis for giving Bernie Sanders the high marks was, "Hey, listen, if you don't top it, he's he, he right now has." Uh, higher vote totals. If you don't topple him, if it's a tie, he's the winner. That was the quick version of the debate analysis. Who should drop out? 
that's a good question. Well, should is it, it depends on what you mean for the good of the party, you mean for the good of the country, or you mean for the uh, just for what would impact? I'll tell you who I think would it would impact it the most. Right? What are the dropouts that I think might matter? Bloomberg. I think the I think Bloomberg and Steyer dropping out would matter a lot. And Bloomberg and Steyer are not going to because they can afford to continue. The 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 person, if I were going to answer, should in a different way, who has the least chance of winning, and who is offering probably the least in adding to the debate by being there, uh, and probably a couple other criteria. If I thought hard, I'd come up with a couple others. Probably Steyer. I think that's probably the one. Uh, that, that's kind of lame because I guess the only reason that he should drop out before Bloomberg, I guess I'm saying just because he's not quite as rich. <laughs> he hasn't spent <laughs> quite as much money. So maybe Bloomberg is a better answer to that question. I think the candidate that might have the biggest impact on dropping out uh, might be Amy Klobuchar. Uh, and uh, even though she doesn't have the biggest vote total, but something I have been a little bit surprised about, and I think it's in significant part because I think this is where the kind of thing like Russian bot activity ends up mattering is we haven't seen a really loud clarion call. It's been There's been a clarion call, but there hasn't been as loud as one might expect for, hey, wait a minute, there really is a chance to elect a woman president. And there never really has been that ever. That was more in the water in 2016. That has been drummed out of the water a little bit and kind of surprising to me. I've been, I was, I've been thinking that there would be, hey, wait a minute, looking around, let's, let's, let's do this. If a... If Elizabeth, uh, if, if uh, Elizabeth Warren were to continue, Amy Klobuchar to drop out, there might be a, a, a uniting of femis- feminists. Uh, but I don't know who do you think should drop out, and should is such a charged question. But what are your thoughts about dropping out? Oh, I, I I agree with you that the biggest impact might be Klobuchar, and if she does not get a good count on Saturday, there's probably no reason for her to drop out. To, before Super Tuesday, simply because even if she had money, three days is not all that much time to spend money. But I would, I would expect. I, in fact, I am going to predict that there's. I think there's a seventy percent chance that she will drop out after Super Tuesday. If and she probably will not endorse the war, and they are not aligned on all policy issues. But I will say, and I, nor do I think she would immediately endorse Bernie Sanders. The other way to answer that question of who the dropping out of whom would make the most impact, uh, somebody dropping out and endorsing a candidate other than Bernie Sanders would have a lot of impact. Right. A candidate, any of these candidates dropped out and endorsed Bernie Sanders, that would also have a yes. really big impact. Yes. I think. I think. I don't think there is a chance in Hades that anybody is going to drop out and endorse Bernie Sanders. That's kind of a challenge, right? And and not and and. It's one of the challenges Bernie Sanders faces. And when there is, and this is also buffeted by bot activity, when they say, oh, Democratic establishment, right, deep state, uh, the, uh, when there isn't, when there isn't uh, large-scale support from colleagues and, and other contestants, it makes it harder potentially to build the kind of party unity. There's some analysis uh, that says that the threat to Bernie Sanders is in fact, and they don't ha- they had this challenge. So the argument in favor of Bernie Sanders' viability and that or the, and that lies alongside kind of Bernie Sanders supporters' view potentially of kind of the political landscape is that no, as long as there is a unifying, roughly speaking, Democratic nominee against a president who has been polling between 37 and 45 percent throughout his presidency, uh, that person can win, whether they're, a, you know, 
79-year-old Democratic Socialist or whether they're some, you know, whether they're a 73-year-old former vice president or whether they're somebody else, somebody else. Before we leave this subject, I just want to mention an interesting thing that I learned this morning. Can I, can I finish my thought real quick? Yeah. I'm sorry. I thought you had. Uh, it hadn't. May, must not have been interesting enough to hold your attention, but I'll try to be quick well, about it. I thought it. you had a period at the end of your... No. <laughs> uh, the argument... Uh, the argument against one of the arguments against it still uh, fits with sort of the Bernie Sanders understanding of the political landscape is that if Bernie doesn't hold the moderate Democrats as voters, then that's actually those are actually the people that are at greatest risk. Uh, uh, the other uh, the other risk. The, the challenge to that is like, no, listen, all these people, that was the old political world when you had to play to the middle. There is no middle anymore. It's all just Democrats versus Republicans. Whoever carries that flag ends up winning. And the counter to that is, well, that might be true in a Fox of Republicans in a Fox News world. There is not yet demonstration that's true on the Democratic side. That there is a, there is not as clearly a monotheistic uh, Democratic Party as there has been a Republican Party. Go ahead, Pop. Well, uh, before we leave the debate per personnel, I learned this morning, very interesting, that before every debate, Elizabeth Warren has prayed with her pastor, her pastor, Miniard Culpepper of the Pleasant Hill Missionary Baptist Church, prays over her for to do well, and she credits that she credits that to whatever success she has had in the debates. This is the Elizabeth Warren argument for viability in the national election, despite a lot of her policy overlapping with Bernie Sanders, is that on matters of faith, on matters of, uh, you know, kind of her Oklahoma upbringing story, that she arguably, in her support for among rural voters, even in the Democratic primary, that she has some crossover appeal that is underappreciated. Here is a... Another text in, uh, though Bloomberg has demonstra demonstrable improvements in New York City, gives money to causes, I approve of pretty upset by his late entry. Uh, any of them would be better than the current president. Another text in, I have a friend in Texas, says the airwaves are overwhelmed by Bloomberg. She thinks he will win Texas just from the pure exposure before the primary. Yeah, the big money for Super Tuesday matters a lot. For a lot of the people who are saying that Bernie Sanders is the front runner, it's not because he's so far ahead in national polls. It's because he also has the campaign apparatus and the dough to actually compete and run ads and have that kind of exposure in all those big expensive states, including California and Texas. New uh, poll. Uh, go ahead. In South Carolina from February 17 to February 25th, according to Clemson East Carolina University, didn't know East Carolina was a state, but you know, that's how you get to 50. So by having a lot of Carolinas. Biden 31, Sanders 21.4, Steyer 14.8, Warren 8.2, Buttigieg 7.7, .7, Klobuchar 3.8. Jim Clyburn has endorsed uh, Joe Biden. He's With the highest. a very, very heart, heartfelt endorsement. It was really, really quite dramatic. You watch it? Yep. What did he say? I didn't well, catch it. Well, he, he, he said, he ended by saying, we know, he'd been saying, we know by, we know Joe, but Joe knows us. Talking about the black community. Black community. Presumably this was timed. Presumably well, Jim course. Clyburn and Joe Biden had had a conversation before in the last couple of days about this endorsement and said, yep. well, why don't we time it 
closer to the vote yep. so that people don't forget about it. And, and the fact that, that Tom Steyer is, has uh, still double digits clearly, I believe, represents the fact that there are a lot more people, a lot more voters who will vote who have not watched the debates but who have been captured by the advertisements. And that's yeah. just a... Yeah, he's been spending time and money there. Yep. You are listening to X-Ray FM, KXY Portland, KQAC, HD3, Portland, 107.1, 91.1 FM, streaming online everywhere in X-Ray.FM and on your X-Ray app. And thank you for listening. This is News with My Dad. Let's take a very quick break. When we come back, we'll do the quick six. Dad, do you have any other quick headlines before this break? I just want to mention one international thing that I th- just reminds us how fortunate we are that... We're going to probably say some harsh things about DDT this morning before we get it. And we do not have to worry about the FBI waiting for us at the door. South Saudi Arabia has arrested a rapper, a female rapper, Asail, for a rap that she made for, this is the charge, offending the customs and traditions of the people of Mecca. Wow. Here's a tip for watching the bots. We want to start doing more, and shout out to Sean Swaggart, I think he's going to help us do this. We're going to start doing more to try to battle disinformation and battle the infection of, uh, of bot meme activity on the web and on social media. And the recognition that it's not just the bots that do it, that stuff gets picked up, right? You, some, some Russian activist does something on Reddit, and then that gets picked up, and other people say, oh, that roughly corresponds to my worldview. I will share that. Uh, and then, and even if it is either because it's a problem either because it's counterfactual or just that it overstates certain viewpoints that aren't the most important, most accurate, most not only most factual or most but essentially more truthful viewpoints. The uh, here's one tip: whatever's trending first thing in the morning, whatever's trending overnight, more likely to be bot activity because that's when all the Russian folks are awake. And where people in the United States are not awake. Yeah, there's 10 hours between us and Moscow. So, uh, for instance, there was a clip that has gone viral of Elizabeth Warren responding to a, a question. It happened to be a question from Bernie Sanders supporter saying, well, why don't you think that uh, do you think that the convention should still make the decision of the presidency? Why shouldn't the person who won the plurality vote do that? Shouldn't they follow the will of the people? And Elizabeth Warren's answer, well, that was Bernie Sanders' view in 2016. Right, and she and, gave a capable and response. We should do, uh, she blew the answer to that. I, go ahead and finish, and then I want to talk about that, because she just blew the answer to that question. I don't think she blew the answer. I think she gave a fantastic answer. But the uh, but my point here is that afterward, overnight, well, something that was trending was primary Elizabeth Warren, right? which I don't think started from a bunch of human being Bernie Sanders supporters. I think that's the kind of thing that happens when bots get in, and it makes us angrier and more divisive and meaner to each other than we otherwise would be. Uh, but, Dad, go ahead and let's take a break. Well, the the, the answer that she should have given to that, All right, which is the obvious Elizabeth. answer, is let's suppose that one of the candidates on this stage has 30% of the votes. And people are saying, well, that means that everybody else should go with that person. No, it means that 70% of the electorate do not have that candidate as their first choice. And so it's quite legitimate to say, okay, well, 
who is your second choice if your first choice can't make it? I think it's a good and point, the, too, but I don't, think, the it's, only, I don't think she blew the, the answer. And the only way to address that is to go to another vote. And then also, this crap, and it is crap, about the uncommitted delegates somehow being undemocratic. The uncommitted delegates are members of Congress. They are governors. They are members of the Democrat, Democratic National Committee who, not just during the few months running up to a presidential campaign and not just at a nominating convention, but for four years out of four years, work at the ground level and attend meetings and spend money of their own money to participate in maintaining, hopefully, a vigorous party and it is quite legitimate to have them participate. We'll be right back. You listen to X-Ray. Radio is yours. And now it's time for today's Quick Six Local Rundown. I'm Jim Smith. It's Thursday, February 27th. For the second day in a row, Republicans in both the House and Senate continued their walkout on Wednesday, a protest intended to tank Democrats' signature climate change bill this session. Without at least two Republicans showing up in each chamber, Democrats can't achieve the two-thirds quorum necessary to conduct business. On Wednesday, that meant no new bills were taken up in either chamber. State Republicans left a clear message in their absence. They will only return to work if Democrats agree to put their landmark climate change proposal before the voters not pass it in the legislature, meaning a bunch of other bills are at great risk. On Tuesday... The Metro Council unanimously voted to refer a measure to the May ballot that, if passed by voters, would raise about $250 million for homeless services every year through two taxes. The first would be a 1% marginal income tax for the wealthiest residents, individuals earning more than $125,000 annually or couples making more than $200,000. The tax would generate about $169 million a year, according to the Director of Government Affairs for Metro. The second tax would be a 1% business tax on the profits of mid- and large-sized businesses, that is, those with gross receipts of more than $5 million gross. Metro estimates that that demonstrate show that that will raise about $79 million each year. Metro estimates that will raise about $79 million each year. And if the measure passes, you combine those two things, that's roughly $248 million a year to help those at risk of chronic homelessness. A man was found dead on Mount Hood this week has been identified. On Tuesday, two climbers found a fallen person in the illumination saddle area of Mount Hood. The man was identified as Dr. Corey Johnson, a Hood River surgeon and father of two. He was pronounced dead a few hours after he was found. Johnson was wearing ski boots and assumed to be a backcountry skier. This is the third death on Mount Hood this winter. The Oregon Lottery will lose money on sports betting this year. Scorecard, excuse me, Scoreboard, a new sports betting app, was advertised as a cash cow for the lottery. But high startup costs and lower than expected users have plagued the agency. Oregon Lottery Director Barry Pack will tell the Lottery Commission on Friday the app is projected to lose $5.3 million in the first nine months of the 2020 fiscal year. That is $11.5 million less than originally projected. A new bill that would ban high-capacity magazines in Washington State is being considered by lawmakers after a previous measure stalled. The sponsor of the new measure, Representative 
Javier Valdez added a fiscal provision which allows the legislature to consider the bill this late in the 60-day legislative session, which ends on March 12th. The bill would restrict firearm ammunition magazines to 15 bullets or less and create a large capacity magazine buyback program operated by the Washington State Patrol. The measure would also eliminate tax breaks for the sale of precious metals and bullion with the proceeds used for the buyback program. And the Portland area will warm up over the next days, maybe getting to the low to mid-60s. The warm weather will last leading up to the weekend and then go back down a little bit cooler by Saturday. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. By the way, one little explainer. We'll have Jamie McLeod Skinner in here in just a moment. In order, there's a question that came in, for the quorum rules to operate, or rather for the session to end, there has to be a vote of sine die, which should be pronounced almost certainly. We don't know how Latin is pronounced. Latin isn't spoken anymore. But it was almost certainly something closer, something more akin to sine die. But anyway, they call it sine die, and that means the end, final adjournment of the session. That vote requires a quorum to do. So the funny thing is they have to stay in session while the Republicans stay away, and that means they keep getting paid their per diem as they go along, even though they're not working. Secretary of State is the second highest constitutional office in Oregon. As we have recent example of, the governor can't fulfill their term. The Secretary of State becomes the governor. But unlike the Vice President of the United States, the Secretary of State has a real portfolio, which includes elections, which includes audits, which includes the corporations division, which includes archives. They're sort of the state's historian. Jamie McLeod Skinner is running for Secretary of State. Grew up in Tanzania, went to school at Medford, in Medford High School in Southern Oregon, has studied everything from cultural anthropology to civil engineering. She's an attorney, small business owner, and now she's here on X-Ray. Jamie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Delighted to be here. Who are you and why are you running? <laughs> well, uh, I'm running because uh, protecting our democracy is the most important thing we can be doing right now. As we're seeing, you were just talking about the walkout. Um, there's all sorts of stuff going on nationally and statewide. And so making sure we protect our elections, both election security and integrity, making sure that we also um, are identifying what we can do better in government through our audit process. And then also one other thing you didn't mention is the state land board. So making sure we're protecting our natural resources through that role is critically important. And then one again, of three votes. One of three votes. You and one friend can decide <laughs> what we do with state lands. There we go. And waterways. So the governor and state treasurer all serve in that role. And then the other really big thing coming up is redistricting. Um, and so the, that's, of course, here in Oregon, that's the responsibility of the legislature. If they, I don't know, hypothetically walk out, then it becomes the responsibility of Secretary of State. And uh, that's drawing the political boundaries uh, for our state for the next 10 years is critically important. We don't want uh, Oregon to go the way of Wisconsin and some of the other um, states in our country with gerrymandering. What are the three biggest things that you want to do, particularly those that might differentiate you from other folks running? Yeah, so... Um, the the three points I mentioned, um, election security and integrity, I've got a lot of experience working with um, uh, different communities. I, I worked in refugee resettlement for a while and working with refugee and immigrant communities uh, when I ran for Congress in 2018. Uh, my wife and I live in Central Oregon, so when I uh, ran for Congress in Southern Central and Eastern Oregon, found a lot of folks are not feeling heard. Uh, a lot of vulnerable communities, including our Latinx community and rural communities, um, not necessarily feel like they've got their seat at the table. So bringing those voices into our election process. And then with audits, uh, I don't think audits have been, 
Well, we can do a lot more with audits, let's say, to daylight the issues that need to be addressed, and especially around health and safety, worker safety. You know, we've got teachers being beaten up in classrooms. We've got uh, bus drivers who are having kidney problems because they're not allowed to stop to use the bathroom. We have all sorts of, like, basic safety problems. The folks doing really good work for us and taking care of our families and our communities. And their issues are not being daylighted. And that's something we can do through the audit process. So I'm, I'm really excited about that. And I talk a lot about audits. Um, you know, it's not just financial audits, also uh, performance audits, making sure money's spent the way it's supposed to be spent. Um, uh, equity audits is, are really important, making sure we're identifying those um, different um, different experiences and different opportunities for having the best bang for our buck and providing opportunities for our communities. Um, this is this is especially important for me because I serve on the Jefferson County Education Service District, and our largest school is uh, Madras High. Our small school is only five kids, but our, our larger school is Madras High, and the demographics of, of Madras High are a third, a third, a third. A third tribal kids, because the Warm Springs Reservation is, is part of that district, a third Latinx kids, and a third Caucasian kids. And we're seeing the challenges that our kids are facing are different, and we need to be able to address that. And we, we do that through equity audits to figure out what those, those key issues are. Um, also sustainability audits, uh, information security audits, there's a lot we can do there. So the third thing is really um, some of the, the natural resource issues. Um, I'm a natural resource attorney. I worked as an, um, my background's in civil engineering, uh, regional planning with a focus on watersheds. Uh, the governor appointed me to serve on the Oregon Watershed Enhancement Board. So making sure that we're protecting our natural resources is, part, is good for our communities, our economy, and our environment. How do you get people to care about a Secretary of State's race? Now, it's it, a governor's race. People kind of know what that is. Yeah. Mayor's race. A lot of people know that what that is, and they interact with it. Yeah. Secretary of State's race. Not as many people may pay attention. You can challenge my premise. No, not at all. How do you get people to care about it? Uh, you know, it's a lot of mini civics lessons to let people know just how important it is. Um, you mentioned that our Secretary of State is also Lieutenant Governor. We're only one of 10 states in the country. Uh, the fact we the Secretary of State oversees audits, we're actually the only state in the country where that's included in that role. Um, you know, the bottom line, the Secretary of State's role is to help government be more functional and do better. And that's, that's really the key. And that's so much of what we need right now, bringing folks together, focusing on solving our problems, and making sure we're identifying where we need to better. And that's the Secretary of State. Current Secretary of State is not running again, or is not running. She didn't run in the first place. She was appointed, essentially appointed on the condition that she wouldn't run. What's a critique that you have of the job of the current Secretary of State? Uh, I don't think she has managed the, the ballot initiative process well. Say more. Um, there, there are some process issues. So when uh, some um, disagreement came out about how to uh, consider some of the, the ballot processes instead of turning to um, our attorney general, who is essentially the state's um, lawyer, she went to outside counsel and spent our taxpayer dollars to kind of... Who'd she use? Do you remember? Um, I should know this off the top of my head. I bet it was, I bet it was uh, DiLorenzo's guy. Was it, what, did, she go to, did she go to that firm? Uh, I know it was a Portland firm who specializes in timber interests. <laughs> ah, okay. So, and that was the issue at hand. Um, so, there's a couple processings. One again is is the um, ballot language. I think um, as Secretary of State, the process I'd put in place is as language is proposed. Uh, if there's an issue with it, to have that conversation up front before people gather signatures, because otherwise you're just running out the clock on folks. Um, also, having a process in place so when signatures are gathered, that if there's incorrect information being uh, provided that there's a very quick turnaround and check on that and that's something 
I experienced in the last cycle um, in 2018 with the signatures being gathered for the measure we call um, that became measure 105. Um, my wife and I were, were in Medford um, and in Southern Oregon and we're, we're going into a store and uh, someone was um, giving incorrect information about that and trying to get people to sign up for a, a very regressive measure that yeah. fortunately we were able to defeat. Um, but there should be a process in place when someone's giving misinformation to catch that. Um, the other thing with the Secretary of State recently is just an interpretation she had on um, uh, the single issue rule. Um, I, I see that differently. Um, I've got legal training and background, but ultimately, again, I would I would uh, have a conversation with our Attorney General on that. Was it Davis Wright? Did she use Greg Chamoff? If you don't remember, that's all I right. It's all right. It's not the most important thing I'll ever ask you. What is the most important thing we can do for election security? If, if your your basic case was something that's inspiring about the Secretary of State's office, that's important about it, something's at stake, is that it is the office that is the sentinel for our state's democracy. And if we want a secure election system, that means we need a, secure, a Secretary of State that secures it, that prioritizes its security. What's the biggest thing we can do on that? Well, I'm going to mention three things. Uh, one is making sure our systems are intact, and that's working closely with um, uh, both federal agencies, that's working closely with our uh, county clerks to make sure that our systems, the processes we have in place are sound and secure. And that's some ongoing training, that's in incorporating some, you know, um, th the most recent best practices. The other piece is really informing the public. We've seen a lot of dumping of misinformation through social media. So trying to uh, arm and, and in better inform the public to be able to filter some of that information. And I'm finding that young folks do a much better job than older folks. I've, I've had some great conversations with college students who say, of course, we always double check. And speaking with folks with gray hair say, oh, no, whatever I see on the, on you know, whatever my friends send me through. Whatever is in my digital newspaper must yeah, be real. Yeah. So we can do a better job of that. And then the other piece is also what I call election integrity. And that is bringing all um, voices to the table. You know, when we don't have a robust voter turnout, and Oregon does better than most states, but when we are not bringing all the voices to the table um, and people who are finding some barriers uh, have those barriers prevent them from voting, that's a that's a form of, of election uh, security and integrity as well. Was Jennifer Williamson treated unfairly? Should she have dropped out? Um, whether she uh, should have dropped out was ultimately her decision. I... Um, I was disappointed. I was I was surprised. It was news to me when when the news hit. When I saw it, uh, read it in the the Willamette Week, um, and and frankly to everyone on my team because I checked. I was like, what's going on? Um, I, you know, what was made really clear through that article is that she did not break the law. I think that um, if if there's uh, you know people raised the, the article raised issues with some of the decisions she made around resources if that becomes a problem if that's an issue you know maybe we should be talking about how funds are spent and if if it's appropriate establish laws around that those laws are not in place now and so again she she did not violate any laws um, I think how um, how we look at election you know I, I do think um, campaign finance and, and some of these issues, how we look at how money is spent is really important. Uh, I have, have not, and in my previous elections, have never taken corporate funds because I think influence is, is a real key issue. Um, so I'm actually the only one in this race um, not taking any corporate money. Um, and I haven't before. The The previous times I've, I've been elected, I was on, I served on the Santa Clara City Council for eight years, um, a city in Silicon Valley, larger than a state Senate district. But in the two elections there, I didn't take uh, corporate money either. I did not 
out when I ran against Greg Walden, um, and I'm not doing it in this race. So that's, I mean, those are some personal decisions, and you, you know, there's, you don't, you're reliant on people to step up then, so you can't necessarily raise as, ma as many funds that way, um, or the large dollar funds that way. Um, so there's decisions you make as a candidate, but um, I would say the, the bottom line in, in the question about Jennifer is she's done some really great things for our state. Um, I, I think there's, with the bigger battles we have on the national scale, and even here in Oregon now, we need all the, the allies we can get who are moving forward good policies and are um, socially progressive. I'm a real proud pro-democracy progressive. Uh, you know, I think Jennifer's as well, and I think it's overall a loss for our state to have um, her not step forward again and, and look to serve in a leadership role. We got a text in from our brilliant listenership. The firm, apparently, according to this listener, is Schwab, Williamson, and Wyatt, uh, for what it's worth. Thank, Thank you, you, listener. Mother. And if you have questions, if you have thoughts, if you want to text in, a reminder, the text line is 971-220-5979. It's 971-220-5979. I'll say it one more time more slowly. 971-220-5979. And if you save it in your phone, it'll be much easier to text me quickly when I screw something up. <laughs> and you won't have to wait for me to say the number again to correct me. Biggest difference between you and Mark Hass? Um, are uh, there's there's several things. Um, I mentioned you know where the money comes from, the background and experience. So I don't come from privilege. I um, you know when I was a kid, my mom would get up early to drive a school bus, um, taught all day, and drove a school bus home. She's recently retired. Um, was a substitute teacher as well. I was uh, also when I. Um, I'm also the product of, of Oregon schools. Um, the other thing is when I had the, the good fortune um, to, to be able to, to get um, a, a couple degrees, my, my undergraduate in civil engineering, my master's in regional planning, at that point, um, I had had that decision to make. Do I take advantage of the, the, the power of the education that I got to, to, um, to you know, benefit myself? Or do I turn to commit myself to public service? And at that point, um, you know, I, I turned around, reached down the ladder, started pulling people up. And so my first public service was over in Bosnia and Kosovo. Um, back in the day, um, if you were out, and I came out at an early age, uh, military was not an option. So I served for the International Rescue Committee, a humanitarian organization. I managed multi-million dollar projects, uh, reconstructing schools and hospitals in Bosnia and Kosovo before returning to the States, working in refugee resettlement. Um, you know, I've, I've um, my path to service has been um, something that's not always benefited me personally, but it's benefited my community, and I'm really proud of that. Um, so you say that as a you say that as a difference. He's been serving in the public sector, you know, as an elected representative for a long time. Is there something about your different backgrounds that suggests a different set of potential decisions, or is it just no, no, uh, we got different backgrounds, and otherwise we'd govern the same? Uh, the PERS vote is a really good one. Um, I'm a uh, was a union member for many years, so that perspective of working family, working class um, is is something that's that's really true to me. Uh, and even in that vote that that was taken, I disagreed about two two issues. One, it it went after people's retirements, but also it essentially extended the timeline for payment. And anyone with a credit card knows that you extend your payment time, you pay more. So it actually is costing taxpayer dollars more. Um, and so that I think was a poor decision. But, you know, the focus on... Um, yeah, one can argue, and yeah. I, I don't want to get too much in the weeds of this at this moment, one could argue that the, that the move to PERS should have been to front load payment, to, to actually 
take a take a big bite maybe through ballot initiative or otherwise and i'm not this is not a political critique this is a hard political problem as, as hard as it is a policy problem but the policy answer might in fact rather than delaying those payments so it means a smaller share of the budget for a longer tail instead taking a big bite of the apple paying a bunch down or putting the bonds to pay for it up front now because that could really trim it down the road feel free to disagree with me or move to the next topic and then pop has a question yeah well actually that's um a, an early investment to pay that down that's actually something we did on the jefferson county esd board we had an, an opportunity to put some funds up front, and that's some that's a commitment we made with, with the same thought of you. You, um, it's a smarter investment, and long term, you save costs. The other thing is on PERS, and I know there's a lot of concern about it. Um, it there was an adjustment made um, over a decade ago that is it was really the course correction that needed to happen in terms of costs, and so now we've got still um, a lot of folks who are in the system, but over time, it's the fix has, has been made in many, or the, the solution has been has been incorporated. Um, but just a, a couple of other things on um, the comparison with Mark. I have worked with refugee and in immigrant communities, um, helping with na- the naturalization process, helping connecting people, getting people the right to vote. You know, we worked a lot, um, again, throughout rural communities, uh, working with disadvantaged communities and disempowered communities to provide people the access to their rights. Uh, that's part of my work history. So I've got, I'm a small business owner. I've got the experience in natural resources. I'm experienced in all aspects of the job. And, and the key thing around government, and this comes to the audit piece, is understanding how to fix government. And I've worked in organizational development, organizational effectiveness for. Um, you need to understand the, all aspects of the role. So I've been frontline staff, I've been executive management, and I've been elected, uh, you know, elected policymaker. Um, I greatly appreciate his service. I'm not at all under um, undermining that, but I think it's been service through one perspective. And I've just my lens and the folks I've served is a much broader, um, m- much broader cross section of our communities. Pop. Well, I have both a question and then maybe an. Ex- an invitation to express an opinion. My question, you decided to run for Secretary of State after having run quite a credible campaign against an established longtime member of Congress who is not going to be running this year, and there's a good possibility, given the vagaries of the primary system and the fact that there are several Republican candidates, all of whom will probably have credible campaigns. So there's a pretty good chance that there might be a really far-right, I won't use the word nut, but very far-right candidate on the Republican side. I'm curious as to why you decided to run for Secretary of State instead of taking maybe a really good shot at Congress. Yeah, no, I've I've gotten that question a lot. Uh, given the success that we had in 2018, while I um, fell short overall, we um, we won two counties. We beat uh, Walden two to one in in his home county, Hood River. I was the first Democratic congressional candidate to. What were the two counties, Hood River and which? And Deschutes. Deschutes so it was yeah. the first so ben, yeah congressional yeah. candidate to to win Deschutes uh, County since the mid 70s, yeah. and there no no other Dems won it um, won the whole county. Uh, we also. Um, outperformed actually the governor by four percent in the second congressional district, and outperformed Brad Avakian, so the last Dem nominee for secretary of state, by twenty six percent in the second congressional district. So we could really win votes, uh, demonstrate we can win votes where a lot of Dems can't. I mean, to the question, the bigger the bigger issue in twenty eighteen was to flip the house. We needed to bring accountability to Washington D.C. Now the challenge nationwide is to get a new president and flip the Senate. But the House is in Democratic hands. No one doubts it's going to it's going to go back in this cycle. 
And so the question is, what's the biggest challenge in front of us? Um, what's the biggest risk at stake for Oregonians? And the best, uh, you know, the biggest challenges ahead of us, as I mentioned, are redistricting. Dems cannot lose the Secretary of State's role because of that redistricting piece. And the fact that um, I can win votes statewide is a, is a really key factor. And I had sort of a similar question about some might have thought the move might be, heck, you won Deschutes County as a Democrat uh, who's who's currently serving in a relevant legislative seat or state Senate seat. Uh, same answer. Anything to add on that one? Is you're sort of thinking about the process of making the decision coming in the background of this, right? You that dad already laid out a little bit. You run in a what is not a thankless because you got thanked a lot. But generally speaking, a losing proposition of running as the Democrat east of the east of the mountains and south of the mountains uh, running in uh, running against Greg Walden and you did you know I don't know better than you expected but better than the last person had done and you know you were getting celebrated in some democratic circles people ready to support you for stuff you'd built a great team of volunteers good good set of small donors uh, and you're ready to do something and you got to figure out how to spend that political capital right and you decided to spend it on this anything to add why not a legislative seat or is it basically the same answer you already gave pop with respect to congress because i understand the congress question i think if you run again you're running in the same really challenging district uh well so you're asking about shoes county and why yeah. not run i don't live in shoes county my wife and I live in Jefferson oh, County. You had so. to move. Why didn't you carpet bag? I understand. That's yeah, a good answer. That, that answer is right there. Might have been a dumb question, but it was no, a good my, answer. My, Bob, go ahead. Well, just the, the one other thing that we did do is we, part of what we were doing last time is we were building up a political infrastructure east of the Cascade that will serve others. So you mentioned the Deschutes County race. We got um, Eileen Kiley, a phenomenal candidate who's running for um, running for state senate there, and um, you know, encourage people to check out her website. She's. Did uh, you great. even for a moment consider moving to a moving to a legislative district to run for the legislature? No, hmm. no. All right. And I, like I said, I serve on the Jefferson County uh, Education Service District Board. Um, really proud of that role. You know, working and in, in supporting our, our educators and our kids is uh, means a lot to me. So um, there are many forms of service, and um, and this is this yeah. is one person. Pop, your opinion on an idea? I am very concerned about the Republican walkout, and it looks to me like the only way to solve that problem is to have a real penalty for walking out. And so I am looking for somebody with a, I didn't, don't think it'd have to be a very big bankroll, to propose an initiative to change the Constitution of the state of Oregon, which would say that any legislator who fails to show up for his or her job without an excuse and it would have to be worded in such a way so that uh, that the presiding officer couldn't refuse to excuse when there was a good excuse, but would forfeit their office. And once upon a time, we had a law in Oregon that if you told a lie in your campaign, you forfeited your office, and a member of the state senate was removed because she had lied on a campaign ad. I just wonder what you would think about having a rule that said, show up or we will send you home and replace you. You're listening to X-Ray, by the way. This is News with my dad. We're talking to Jamie McLeod Skinner, candidate for Secretary of State of Oregon. Yeah, what should be done about the walkout? Well, um, good governance is critically important, and the Secretary of State plays a role in trying to protect that that. Um, 
our, how our systems work. Um, I think to this point, we just have to make sure we're taking a big step back and they're not unintended consequences. You know, I think it's funny you raised this because I think it was after last year's walkout that uh, Lane Shetterly, the former Republican member of uh, the House of Reps, I think he served as Speaker Pro Tem from 2001, 2004, essentially recommended something like this last year. But he also saw, you know, we've seen both parties do this. Um, I do think that, you know, ultimately folks should be... Um, doing their jobs and sitting down around the table uh, to to um, to sort through the business of the state. Um, and we've got, what's ironic for me is that we've got examples uh, across the state, especially in Eastern Oregon, things like the High Desert Partnership, that is an example of folks sitting down and, and working together and not, no one's stomping out and actually um, solving problems. To your point of establishing a criteria or a rule, um, you know, I think it's worth it's worth having the conversation um, and getting it right. I think is going to be key because again, everyone will be held to the same standard. Um, but establishing some criteria is, is something that I think um, you know I I would support because it's we need people to be doing their business and not just shutting down government every time they're they're angry. We got a text in question. Concerned about you being on, about Jamie McLeod Skinner being on the state land board, made statements she wants to represent the rural part of the urban-rural divide. To me, this means she might not be good on issues like the Elliott State Forest and might side with anti-environmental elements of the state, or at least she might be too willing to compromise on issues regarding the environment. How do you respond? Yeah, um, that I'm very influenced by my Southern Oregon um, background, and uh, Southern Oregon is especially concerned with uh, the energy pipeline. Um, the my my background and training is um, and concerned with the energy pipeline. You mean concerned with making sure there are more energy pipelines, or do you mean trying to block the impacts? Things? Concerned yeah. the impacts. So for about uh, five years of my career, I worked as an environmental planner for the Santa Clara Valley Water District. It's a, a water agency that serves about two million people in urban and rural areas, providing clean water, uh, mitigating impacts, uh, environmental impacts from projects. So the way I look at projects, the, the lens I bring is to look at you know the benefits it brings and the um, the, the, the impacts, the negative impacts, and whether or not they're significant and the long-term impacts. Um, if those outweigh the benefits, then it's something that, um, you know, then it's not a project I would support. So it was essentially a NEPA review that I was doing, but it's that, that long-term perspective. It's looking at um, the, the impacts from, from many different perspectives. And, and here's some of the areas where I think we really need to be um, – you know, honoring and, and respecting some of our tribal communities, or not some, but our tribal communities, our treaty obligations. Um, when I was in, in law school at the U of O, I uh, studied natural resource law, water law, Indian law. I was the co-director of the Native American Law Student Association my 3L year. And making sure that we are hearing all the voices at the table is a critical part of decision making, but also looking at some of those impacts. So you know, making sure we're protecting our natural resources for the long term. Uh, there is, um, you know, we do have some uh, harvesting of our forests in parts of our state that's part of the, the ag interest industry, but we also have old growth. We have some areas that we absolutely need to protect for the long term. And even those folks, I have uh, friends in Southern Oregon who have their own forests and have logged for, for generations, and it's, it's a sustainable practice that they use. So on targeted areas and having sustainable practice is, um, is something that has, has worked for 
uh, for private landowners who have have logging rights. Um, but the bottom line is I've got a very strong environmental track record. Um, when I served, um, when I was down in, in the Bay Area and served on the Santa Clara City Council, I was also the chair of the recycling waste, the countywide recycling waste reduction commission, and one of the big issues coming through at the time was single-use plastic bags, and I chaired through a solution that um, uh, essentially end up coming state law, and it's very similar to what is now Oregon's state law around um, n not using single-use plastic bags because the impact on the environment. If you are a die-in-the-wool environmentalist, a League Conservation Voters member, a Sierra Club member, a Thousand Friends member. Uh, would you have a hard time? Do you think you'd have a hard time making a decision in this race? Do you think you're all sort of roughly equivalent, uh, equivalent environmentalists in this race? And I include Shamia Fagan, who has just, uh, roughly speaking, announced her candidacy. Uh, Cameron Smith, uh, who is running. Mark Hass, who is running. Uh, Jennifer Williamson is no longer running. I don't think I missed. If I missed anybody, I apologize. Uh, anything more you want to say about your credentials, environmentalist, vis-a-vis -vis the other candidates? Um, I just I have a track record. I have really strong credentials. I've got the um, I, I've got the experience being able to look at issues and understand issues. Also, as a natural resource attorney, you know, being able to to um, advocate to protect our natural resources. Um, no one else has a track record I have in the background, and I'm happy to talk about that in detail. We're going to kick out some information on social media. Um, we've been planning to do that to to work down the laundry list. I served on the board of Sustainable Silicon Valley when I was there. I've served on all sorts of um, uh, conservation boards in, and and that's that urban rural divide piece is not about um, watering down values. It's about finding ways to build joint solutions. So you know when we talk climate change is such a huge issue right now, and obviously the legislation is causing a walkout. Um, what I w was working to do and trying to develop a better dialogue um, in the off session or last year after after the, the walkout, trying to bring folks together to have a conversation in rural areas. And also sometimes it's just the language you use. So, you know, in, in metro areas, there's more talk of climate change. In rural areas, we talk about wildfire and drought and flooding. Look at what's happening in Eastern Oregon right now with the flooding. Look what happened a couple years ago with wildfire. People take these issues very seriously. So sometimes it's using a different language, but it's really pushing for the same long-term solutions. And um, you know, the getting just getting people into a shouting match causes the walkouts that we're seeing right now. Uh, we need to be able to bring people to the table and build up the political pressure on those Republicans who are walking out. And you can't build up that political pressure by just getting in a shouting match. You've got to get folks in rural communities. And there's a lot of progressives in rural communities that are not seen and heard, but build up that political muscle. And that's a lot of what we did in 2018 to put pressure on folks to make them show at the table and ha and and um, talk about and create long-term solutions because we're not getting them right now around the climate. How do you win this race? The Democratic primary is one in the Willamette Valley. That is only a mild exaggeration. The vast bulk of Democratic votes that are going to be cast in this Democratic primary are not going to be cast. They're not going to be cast by independents. They're not going to be cast by mm -hmm. Republicans. And they're not going to be cast mostly by people in the congressional district where you ran. How do you win this race with uh, running against somebody who's been a state senator in Washington County, running against somebody who's been a state senator in Multnomah and Clackamas counties, right, in the Valley, in this media market, uh, working with the interest groups that tend to have their executive directors living in this town? How do you win this race? 
Yeah, well, um, the advantage I have is that we've got so many folks jumping in who live in the metro area and work or still recently worked in Salem. Um, So it's a different perspective. A lot of folks in the metro area are not feeling hurt and frustrated by by that. Um, Also, a lot of folks in the metro area recognize that we need statewide leadership uh, from across the state, that if it's we just have this um, narrow silo of of leadership that that's not going to work for folks and that's going to cause conflict and some of the conflict we're seeing right now. Um, so, you know, they're progressive throughout the state. In terms of um, the numbers, I mean, we have to, you know, split the difference. I'm spending about half my time in the metro area and really introduce myself, getting to know folks I haven't met before and then building on relationships we've built before um, and then getting that support uh, in in the valley and, um, and throughout the state. Um, I have very high recognition because of 2018. A lot of folks, again, are excited about someone who can bridge that divide. Um, But the numbers, I start with a huge advantage. You know, you mentioned Mark and and, and even um, Shamia. They typically, they're looking at about, you know, maybe 30,000 votes for them. You ran in a bigger district. They might have been in Multnomah County, in Clackamas County, Washington County, but you ran in a bigger part of the state. Bigger part of the state, but harder place for for Democrats to win. And I uh, outperformed for the last almost 20 years. I mean, Greg, in his 20 years, has never had that kind of competition before. So... We've got that built up. Um, in terms of some of the relationships, um, you know, there, there are organizations that, like Apano, I've been endorsed by Apano, really honored to have that endorsement. A vocal seniority um, in, in the, it's an indivisible group. Um, even even Josephine County Democrats, so rarely did, did county Democratic groups step in, but they stepped in because they recognized just how important this race was. But also folks like former um, Secretary of State Gene Atkins, uh, Valdo, uh, Valdez Bravo, so folks from, who represent different perspectives, some even within the Democratic Party, um, uh, you know, Senator Jeff Golden, uh, Alyssa, uh, Representative Alyssa Kenny Geyer. So, you know, from the metro area, who's also You've got seen, metro area endorsers who people trust and listen to. Yeah, exactly. Well, respect. Kitty. What, um, what, what's your favorite color? <laughs> uh, well, I, I wear purple shirt a lot and I get teased for it, but I like purple. Why do you get teased for it or why do you wear purple? Well, it's a little bit darker than lavender. Okay. <laughs> there you go. You, you walked right into that one, buddy. It's a bolder you walked choice. right Lavender. into that. Walked right into that. Okay. All um, right. It's you know it, it also um, it it represents for me the 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 you kind of blending the perspective and that goes to the question before that someone had. Be really clear. Is there you know I'm I'm a proud Democrat, proud uh, progressive. But when I was talking about super progressive issues in Eastern Oregon to conservatives, if you t- if you get away from the buzzwords. I had conservatives thinking those were conservative issues. Yeah. It's like it, it's the it's bringing people together and talking about ideas. And so you know, I'm a lifelong Democrat. Um, and, and but I'll also challenge my party when I think it it needs to be challenged. But it's really about focusing on how do we do government better? How do we how do we help our families and communities? Especially and that's your favorite families. color. No, <laughs> that's why purple, and that's why it's better than lavender. It represents What's the dumbest question you've received? You can include the one I just asked. What's the dumbest question you've received as you've been running for Secretary of State? There are no dumb questions. That's so not true. <laughs> <laughs> um, I can't imagine that's the case. I, I think I think I, it's it's not a dumb question. It's just not a, a not um, a lack of experience question. Is folks assume that. Um, that um, that that there's there's not progressive ideas throughout our state. I mean, there's rural Democrats who are feeling unheard because we've got really progressive ideas from across the state. And so, you know, it's it's almost you know, I found. 
or I find that a lot of uh, progressives in rural areas will almost like have a, a coming out to me where they're like, oh, I'm so glad you're running because you're, you're our voice in, especially metro areas, let them know that we exist and this yeah. is important to us. Um, the other thing is, is being out statewide. I know there's, whereas we don't necessarily haven't been able to provide some of the support we need statewide on, on issues like uh, for the LGBTQ community, especially for younger kids, you know, I'll have people who will say, well, you know, are you afraid of, of being an out lesbian in Eastern Oregon? And one of my favorite things to say when I was running before, especially, was, look, I'm not afraid of, of, um, of being out in Eastern Oregon. What makes me nervous is telling people down in Ashland, which is actually my hometown, down in Ashland that I listen to country music. It's kind of the sense of, you know, we have these, these perceptions about each other, but it's, um, we, when we talk ideas, we've got vast amount of folks yeah, agreeing people can things. agree. I get that part. I, I want to ask the same head-to-head question with respect to Shamia Fagan. What's make you, what makes you better than her? Um, you know, I have a lot of respect for for her service and, and the work she's done. Um, I've got experience, uh, connections throughout the state. I've got more environmental experience. I've a uh, small business owner. I, I've got, uh, to her as well as the other candidates, I've got aspect experience in all aspects of, of the race. I've got government experience. I've been a union member. Um, and, you know, I've always, you know, I've always... Um, stuck it out I've, I've always I've always done the job when I've I've been given a job I've always I've always completed the job and that's something that I think um, that that I think she's you know people are she might get some heat for it's endorsement season right now the next couple of weeks you've mm-hmm. got a lot of endorsement interviews and endorsement questionnaires and decisions to be made by organizations that if this were I mean I'm going to compare this for instance to president Bernie Sanders didn't need a lot of uh, institutional organizational support once he had built a, a a mammoth internet apparatus. Okay, uh, if you're real famous, heck, if you run for if you run for governor, a lot of people are going to start paying attention to that. Organizational endorsements can matter a lot in a secretary of state's race. They can matter a lot for donations because if you send out a link, hey, secretary of state, everybody, I, I'm going to do this by six dollar contribution. We're like, wait, wait, what? Secretary of state, remind me of that. It's not yeah. instantly in their Act Blue feed. Uh, so endorsements can matter. What are the endorsements you're paying attention to most that we should pay attention to most that you think are going to matter most for deciding this primary? Yeah. I, Not counting endorsements you already have. Well, I, you know, I do think organizations like Apano are, are really key. Sure, and there, the ones coming are, up in the next couple yeah. of weeks, which we so, be watching for. You know, I think um, uh, uh, labor, especially around education issues, is, is a really important one. Um, and labor is always part of the conversation, obviously, uh, in terms of infrastructure. But it's also, you know, Part of the resources you look at in a campaign are are um, um, uh, there's a lot of different um, types of resources that fall into that basket. The volunteer base is often what comes. And you just mentioned that that comes with those endorsements. So an endorsement, if it's a nice name, that's nice. But if it comes with an army of support or a lot of resources, that's really what what has that impact. You know, we we built up um, almost. Uh, I think we had about 2,600 volunteers in the C2 race. We've got a lot of folks who are excited about that, and people are excited also about this race and being able to to look at things statewide. Um, so we've got a real resource base that we're building off of and the name recognition. Um, but other endorsements, you know, um, environmental endorsements are important. Um, you know, what are the ones that are going to connect with constituencies? But the ones that, that we've secured, a lot of the, the, the individuals who are well-respected around the, around the state and who know the role, those, those I think are really key. And who ro- know the role now and who understand 
the diversity of our state. It's, it's one thing when you've got someone who had a very narrow focus of who they served and served a long time ago doesn't necessarily understand the current needs. Yeah. It, it's about people who understand the current needs of our state. Was and that, that Mark Ass? No, it, it's, it's not at all. It's about, it's about talking, um, recognizing where the needs are now. Homelessness is a huge issue right now. And frankly, my experience working with refugees, homeless folks are no different than domestic refugees. Um, so those experience that understanding of issues. My my international experience. My Understood. It, with a lot of uh, dad. We're about to we're about to wrap. So, but, but is there something that's burning that you want to say before we do? Well, just directly on this question, very significant or endorsements for a Democrat, NARAL, OLCV, in addition to unions. And I'm wondering what what is your what do you think your prospects are there, particularly since Shemania has decided to enter the race. Yeah, has that changed the endorsement politics a little bit? Um, it, well, to a certain degree, but... And then finish finish however you want, because we're going to wrap the interview, so you can finish with a flourish. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, well, I mean, you, you, the two you mentioned specific, one, environmental, I think looking at different environmental organizations and, and also looking at from their perspective, uh, you mentioned early on um, that you know, where relationships are established. So, you know, NARAL uh, took it on the chops from the, the press recently because they had just jumped in and, and done some endorsements based on relationships, you know, um, they they got they got hit in that in the paper just recently. So some of the organizations... Yeah, who was it that they endorsed? We talked about it here. Who was it they endorsed prior to interviews? Well, they did with Jen, and, and they also did yeah. with someone who's, who's running Williams for... Jen and one of the city council candidates. Yeah, they, one of the city council, that's right. Prior, that's right. prior to interviews, they just said, hey, we know this person, we like him, we were encouraged him to run. Well, and we Jen served now. on their board, right. in fairness to her. Right. Um, but so there's a, so a process, and also folks, you know, we've got some of these organizations who say, yeah, we need to work statewide. I mean, you know, you talk about uh, for LGBTQ uh, kids, and um, you talk about uh, for, for women and, and issue of choice and abortion, you don't even if we have really good uh, laws on the books, if you don't have access in in Central and Eastern and Southern Oregon, then those laws are pretty meaningless. What's the endorsement you want most right now? I, um, being the daughter of a teacher and daughter of an educator, I, I'd, I'd love to get the support of, of educators. That would, that would mean a tremendous amount to me because they also... Doing a, a tremendous amount. I realize that there's yeah, a lot of competition. Powerful. They're, they're par- yeah. Well, it's also I realize there's a lot of uh, competition based on some of the resources that have flown their way. Yeah. Um, and so I know Mark's done a lot of work on that. Um, but closing word. Um, Secretary of State is the most important role right now with redistricting coming up. Uh, also, a really key thing is I am not running for governor in 2022. I look forward to to a good Democrat stepping up and running for that uh, when Kate terms out. But I'm running for this office to fix what needs to be broken, to make sure daylighting issues, especially health and safety issues for our workers, identify sustainability issues for our environment, and uh, secure our elections. That's I should have asked you about the... Uh, redistricting initiative that has been put forward. Uh, not a fan. Right. Not a fan. We we need to make sure that all our communities, uh, especially communities of color, vulnerable communities, are heard, and the process doesn't include that. You're listening to X-Ray. Jamie McLeod Skinner. Hey, I bet you have a website. I, thank you so much. JamieForOregon.com. It's J-A-M-I-E-F-O-R Oregon.com. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks, Jefferson. We'll be right back. This is my dad. That was Jamie McLeod Skinner, candidate for Secretary of State. This is X-Ray. Radio is yours. And we're on with Alex Zielinski, news editor for Portland Mercury. Alex, how you doing? Jefferson. Hi. Who are you going to vote for for Secretary of State? Uh, I know you can't answer Secretary that question. State. I just wanted to ask it anyways. <laughs> what, what, are we, what should we be paying attention to in the city of Portland here? 
Uh, well, I've spent the week um, hopping around to different courts, um, which has been kind of fun. Which we still have, tedious. which is good news. We still have courts. We still That's the news. Courts still around. Nice. Justice system, semi-intact. Um, <laughs> yeah, I spent the uh, past couple of days in federal the federal courthouse for a few different cases. Um, one, which is uh, a check-in with the city of Portland um, by a federal judge on how it's doing with its settlement agreement. It's eight-year-old settlement agreement now, I think. Yes. Um, with this, with the Department of Justice over the way Portland's police were disproportionately using force against people with mental illnesses. Um, earlier this year, actually just a month ago, which is, this is a very short year, so, <laughs> um, the Department of Justice came forward and said, hey, that settlement agreement we reached between the city, um, you know, with all these kind of different plans to improve police force and the way that the police handle or, and, um, you know, uh, stop and, and interact with people with mental illness, we're good. We've, you've met all of the needs, all of the boxes have been checked. Let's close this um, litigation once and for all. But they also had to go in front of a judge to, to kind of prove their case. And it was interesting because um, while, you know, in a traditional court case, it's both parties, especially the, the, the group that sued the city, sued the, uh, you know, the, the group here was fine and is ready to move on, is fine, you know, met all the settlement needs, um, we're good, let's like shake hands and leave. Usually that's the end of the, the end of the day. But um, the community groups who've been signed on as, as um, Amakai in this, uh, or Michi in this um, lawsuit, they're not, they don't agree. A lot of these community groups, a lot of the ones um, who you've seen around town kind of working on police uh, accountability stuff, the Albina Ministerial Alliance, Portland Cop Watch, they've come forward and said, hey, the DOJ, um, you know, it's great that they came in, but they're not, they're missing some things, especially the the, the piece of, of the settlement agreement that asked for community involvement. So we've been having, um, we've had, we've had Mike Simon overseeing this. That's not happening anymore. And the question is, what is still going to happen? And you're trying to go through some of the elements that are subject to, well, is there still going to be review for this kind of stuff? Yeah, well, uh, Judge Simon's still overseeing this, and he's still, um, he was the one ruling uh, during this this hearing the other day, and he asked the city and the DOJ to come in in a year and let them know how they're let him know how they've been working with these community groups to really see what to really you know make amends and, and find out if they can agree on what success looks like. So basically, he's saying, sure, whatever. The DOJ says that they're fine, they're done with this case, but um, the community here, they they don't see that, and that's really what matters. And so you're still on the hook for figuring this out um, and for really... You who? You being the police uh, the police department, the police union being the city of Portland. The city and the police department and kind of whoever, yeah, in the city can take control here. Um, The Department of Justice, which is kind of interesting, they're ready. They seem kind of frustrated during this hearing. They want to be done with this case. Um, They're, you know, they're the ones who came in and kind of litigation in the first place but they are ready to to move on um so what are the what are the key if you were going to say the most important thing that you're watching that needs to be resolved what would you say the biggest thing for us to watch is in this specific um sure going forward sorry sure yeah going forward yeah 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's um, whether or not, specifically whether or not the community group um, that has the acronym PSEP, which I cannot remember um, off the top of my head what it stands for, but it's basically a uh, oversight group, um, you know, made up of volunteers whose job it is to help connect community members and hear their concerns um, and connect them, their concerns to the police bureau. Basically, a community oversight board that, that gives recommendations to the police about how to be better um, at, you know, like fielding community um, input and just community, uh, okay. you know, engagement. There's a really huge lack of distress still in, in uh, the police here in Portland. And so right now, that's kind of the last piece. A lot of people think that that community, that piece up, that that um, community is not working, that it hasn't reached out the way it should be to different groups, that it's kind of working in a vacuum. And, and the question is whether they're going to have authority or the question is what authority that's going to be, they're going to have? The question is whether they're going to see success and what that looks like. So it's a little Got it. Blurry. So it's evaluating, evaluating what success looks like. And what is, and forgive me if I'm just being dense, when does, is it up to, is it up to Judge Simon when this case is resolved? Yeah, essentially, yes. And There's many do, do we have any indications of the of the time window? When's the earliest you could imagine that being? When's the latest we can imagine that being? The earliest, February 2021. Um, the latest, a year from that. So it's going to be uh, well, either a year from now or two years from now? Right, or indefinitely if... You know, something terribly goes wrong. And Some, something else that's happening right now is is already starting to bleed into police contract negotiations. Issues that have come up before, of course, include salary and benefits. Of course, include well, maybe not of course, but include staffing levels <laughs> potentially, number of officers. Uh, there have been discussions in the past whether there should be uh, new rules on use of force. There have been discussions on, and how to hold police officers accountable. There have been discussions about should there be either requirements for or uh, benefits for being a police officer for Portland Police Department who lives in the city of Portland. What are issues that you are watching in addition to those, unless one of those seems so much so important that you want to only focus on that? Yeah, well, I think a big one is always going to be discipline, and that's kind of the city's biggest um, area of focus, you know, making sure that they're yeah, holding police accountable. To, what's the what's the process here? Is it are these public negotiations? My brother is a teacher, and he got to sit into, you know, it, it, apparently it's public uh, negotiations that are happening between the uh, Portland's teachers and the and the right. school board. And he described it to me. He said press isn't allowed in. Uh, I don't know what the rules are about that, but that's what he said. But he said there were two rows of two rows of chairs facing each other. One row was the sort of district negotiators and the other row was the union negotiators. And the district negotiators came uh, came out and made their pitch and the union negotiators came and made their pitch. Union negotiators said, hey, we want an 8% raise followed by a 6% raise. I think followed by a 4% raise. Do I have that right? Or was it, was it 12, 8, and 6? But anyway, it, I did the math and it added up to, if you include compounding, about 27, 28% uh, over the next three years. The district came back and said, how about 1%? <laughs> One <laughs> percent. Yeah, I mean that—that's not dissimilar to the kind of scene we're seeing. Okay. Um, the bargaining table for the for the police union in the city. I mean, you have two tables, yeah, facing each other. It feels very like modern or model UN. There's like little tablecloths and everyone's dressed really nice. Um, and then there's a little audience section that gets to watch. But so you ask if it's public. Um, the meetings are going to be held. Um, 
uh, alternating the city and uh, hosted by the city and hosting by hosted by the police union. And the meetings that are hosted by the city are all going to be open to the public. The meetings, and these are the negotiating meetings, um, the meetings that are going to be held by the police union will be private. And ha, private to the point where... Well, yeah, and, and private to the point where they don't even want... They don't want any members of their union there. Um, really? Except, except people in the bargaining team. They don't want any additional people from the city um, except for people on the city's bargaining team. So no, you know, city staff or employees aside from like those six people on the table. There can be um, benefits. There can be benefits to negotiating secrecy because then you can actually make a concession that would be unpopular to your members. You can say, yeah, listen, we'll, we'll go for that. And things can, I mean, there's actually can be an argument right. in favor yeah, of secrecy. Yeah, that's, that's the, their argument. I mean, it's more, it's, it's, it's less like, hey, we're doing these like secret um, dealings. It's more candor. Just need to, yeah, we need to negotiate. Negotiating is messy, and it, we need to, to do that in a, sa- a safe Dad, space. Ta- ta- Dad's um, got a question ta- before talking, we wrap. Talking, talking about who's at the table, what's happening with the flap over the former city director of uh, personnel director? The HR uh, director, uh, right. Of s- representing the, the union. Table. What's happening with that? I mean, it seems to me that that's just an obvious conflict, that it should be a no-brainer, but is is that going to have to wait for the court to decide? It, yep, that's exactly right. The, she's going to be at the table until there's a court decision, and so far we don't have a court decision. I think there's some statute of uh, a time limit, and I don't remember if that's 100 days or, or that, that the court has to respond. But up until then, she's she's happily sitting across the table from the city um, using information that the city argues uh, she, you know, information that she retained when she was working for the city to use it against maybe the city. In, Interesting. In the information she has between her ears. You're listening to X-Ray FM, KXRY Portland, KQAC, HD3 Portland, 107.1, 91.1 FM, streaming online everywhere at xray.fm. Alex Zelinsky, thank you so much for a great report. Of course. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate you. Well, Dad... I think it's about time for Straw in the Wind. I think it probably is, and I have two. Like a straw in the wind. First straw in the wind. The United Kingdom Court of Appeals has ruled that the Heathrow Airport cannot build a third runway because it would violate the agreements made in Paris about the environment, and also relative to the environment, J.P. Morgan, the huge bank, has decided that they are phasing out all loan support for the coal industry and will be no longer financing the coal industry by 2024, and they are going to pledge $200 billion available in loans for clean energy projects. That's a significant straw in the wind. This week in charts, how Trump compares with past presidents. I'll hold it up to the microphone so people have a chance to experience it with me. Donald Trump has spent more time underwater than any other president. And when you compare him to any other president since essentially my lifetime, you compare him to George W. Bush, George H.W. Bush, Ronald Reagan, Jimmy Carter, and Bill Clinton, and you put their graph of uh, their graph of approval rating above, next to Donald Trump's. Donald Trump's not a very popular president. 
when you see underwater, you're not talking about when he was in the spa. You're talking about his political support. Yeah, I mean, under fifty percent. I mean, I mean, more people get him than for him. Uh, Dad, any other headline that we missed in our last minute and a half? Well, headlines that we might have missed. Uh, I think we should recognize something that's happening in the White House. Johnny McIntyre, a 29-year-old ex-quarterback has been appointed by DDT as the assassin to go out and get rid of anybody that he can get rid of in the government that does not swear fealty to him. We are, we are moving towards autocracy in this country. Jordan Cove's decision, the decision around Gordon, Jordan Cove has been delayed by feds after Oregon has denied a key permit. Oregon was the first sanctuary community in the United States to respond to the ICE subpoenas. Uh, Oregon has also joined a 39-state investigation to Jules' marketing practices. Oregon Attorney General Ellen Rosenblum, Ellen Rosenblum, excuse me, announced on Tuesday that Oregon is joining a bipartisan, multi-state investigation into Jewel Labs, the company behind the popular e-cigarette and vaping products. You mentioned Jordan Cove. The court has decided that the federal government can punish sanctuary cities and sanctuary states by withholding federal money five to four vote there's also a story about the ducks and i don't mean sabrina Ionescu. i mean that china is sending a hundred thousand ducks to pakistan to fight the locusts at least a hundred thousand of the specially raised waterfowl are expected to be sent to pakistan later this year to combat a desert locust outbreak one duck can eat more than 200 locusts a day. Oh, boy. I love you, Pop. I love you, too. Go Ducks.